0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Robert O'Kell about his study of the political and literary career of the 19th century British prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli. Bob, welcome to the show. Welcome. I'm
1: I'm very pleased to be
0: here. We're pleased to have you here. Bob, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, uh, I'm now a professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, uh, and a former dean of the Faculty of Arts at that university. Um, and uh, But I taught for 44 years in the Department of English Film and Theater. And uh, during that time, I spent a lot of that, my research time, working on Disraeli. I get the
0: impression from your career that this has, in some ways been a project long in gestation. Is that correct? Or did you come about the book to, to write the book more recently?
1: Well, uh, no, it has been a project of long gestation. Uh, I first got interested in Disraeli when I was in graduate school and I took a history seminar. Uh, and I found, as the professor was talking about the rivalry between Gladstone, its William Gladstone and Disraeli, um, that much of what he said made a lot of sense, but I was curious because I knew that Disraeli had written some novels, and I decided to go and read a couple of them, just as sort of background in the course. But when I read the novels, I realized that he was a much different figure from what I had come to think, and uh, so I began to uh, explore in my own mind, uh, what those differences uh, uh, from his perceived, usual personality and what I discovered by reading the novels would have, what what consequences that would have for thinking about his actual role in 19th century politics. But then as I got into that, I read more of the novels and then I became interested in them as a scholarly uh, uh, subject as well.
0: That's one of the points that stood out uh, when I read your book, which was that there seems to be some difficulty, especially from the side of British historians, in terms of coming to terms with his literary career. And I think at one point you talk about how they treat it almost as though there are two Disraelis.
1: That's very true. Um, But uh, before I answer that question can I just say that one of the things about Israeli really that's really fascinating is that he he achieves most of his life's ambitions over the decades of his life um, despite uh, a most unpromising sort of start he uh, he is able to, uh, to use rhetoric in such a powerful way that he's able to overcome almost all the liabilities that should have kept him from achieving any kind of success. I mean, the matter of his Jewish heritage is certainly um, uh, an important liability in 19th century England, uh, where the Jews were uh, precluded from any role in politics uh, until the 1850s, and subject to a great deal of uh, prejudice and hostility. And uh, on top of that, uh, uh, he had a very eccentric education. Instead, he was a very bright young boy, but he was not sent, as his younger brothers were, to a public school. He was uh, sent to a very obscure private institution and, uh, and then uh, left, uh, turned, more or less turned loose in his father's library uh, to educate himself. And those are significant liabilities when you consider what uh, the background of most of the people who succeed in politics are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but uh, I'll come back to uh, uh, his uh, his education and the consequences of his uh, early uh, behavior uh, in a minute. But to act, to take your point about the two Israelis it is very much true that historians have neglected the fiction by and large and when when they have tried to comment on it uh they've settled for very easy things like plot summary and character summary uh without really asking themselves is there any kind of narrative pattern in these books um and uh, and do they have any connection to the life uh, being lived in politics so the theory that I came up with was that, uh, in fact, the novels are all connected in some way or other to the matter of Disraeli's identity and, uh, and to the particular moments in his political life uh, that are most critical. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm arguing that there is a direct and powerful connection between Disraeli's fictions and the critical moments of his political career. And as a consequence, to view Disraeli as a minor novelist who found his real success in politics, or as a politician-statesman who happened to write a number of quixotic novels, is really to misperceive the man. It's really essential, I think, to see that both endeavors, the fiction and the politics, express the same urgencies of his life. The novel's served Israeli as a means of exploring and coming to terms with both public and private aspects of his identity that are problematical. While the politics becomes a form of theater in which tensions and ambivalences of his character find ever more powerful expression in roles occasioned by ideological disputes.
0: And I think that gets to one of the things that makes him such a difficult figure to uh, come to terms with because there really is there's definitely nobody like him before. And you think nowadays where so many politicians uh, do occasionally go into writing or novelists who go into politics, I'm thinking for example of, um, I, I, I think it's Jeffrey Deaver's one example who, for whom politics seems to be more of a passion and a hobby rather than necessarily a career. And it, I think accentuates that notion of, you know, you're either fish or foul. You're not. You can't be both. Mm-hmm. And it creates. It, I think it fuels that misconception about Disraeli that you were referring to.
1: Well, one of one of the reasons why historians tend to neglect the novels is that they judge them to be very second rate. Uh, the the early novels, the six or seven novels he wrote before he got into politics uh, in any successful way, uh, are really romances and a lot of historians just see them as trashy uh that they're not significant uh, works of art and uh, so they want to neglect that and then they have to deal with the trilogy of novels coningsby civil and tankard which are overtly political in their themes um and they usually provide some kind of summary of that but there's so much in in the novels that um is um over the top as it were <laughs> in the uh in the uh nature of the characterizations and in the nature of the uh, narrative expressions that uh it's easy to dismiss them unless you're convinced that they have some important connection as i say to disraeli's identities
0: i think it also doesn't help that in so much of academic training, we tend to put ourselves into certain silos. Historians don't necessarily get into uh, literary study, and thus, for them, the idea of analyzing a novel in the way that you've analyzed Israelis' works is, at the very least,
1: uncomfortable for them. I think that's true. Uh, but, I was a product of the interdisciplinary Victorian Studies program at Indiana University, and so I was encouraged to do both disciplines uh, and others as well and and to try and uh, deal with the the differences in methodology and the differences in in assumptions that uh, underlie each of the uh, subjects and so I think that was a very important part of why I got interested in Disraeli.
0: I was wondering if we could go back now and talk a bit more about his early career as uh, you begun doing in yeah. terms of his uh, early years and how it was he came to start writing
1: novels. Uh, okay, uh, let's talk about uh, briefly about uh, his childhood and adolescence and early young manhood. He st- as I say, he started out with some liabilities uh, and uh, but he then went on to make almost every possible serious mistake <laughs> and uh he uh, in doing that he 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 set himself up to be the easy target of people who wanted to dismiss him um, he for example um, as a young man uh with this as i say very eccentric education. He got into uh, some speculation on the stock market uh, in the 1820s. I mean, this is about the age of 20. And he ran up some very significant debts, which he had no means of repaying. Uh, and these debts would come to plague him almost all of his life until he actually got uh, to the point where he had significant donors and backers uh, behind him. Uh, and that was very, so for several decades he was constantly in very, very deep debt. Uh, and, uh, and the, the debts kept getting ever larger because of the rule, the lax rules on, uh, on interest and so forth on, on loans. So that was one thing that was certainly not in his, uh, advantage. And then he, in the 1830s, uh as he gets very interested in the idea of running for politics he carries on an an adulterous affair with lady henrietta sykes um and in, did so in such a public way that uh, again his his uh question of his moral character came up and and it seemed easy again to dismiss him as anyone likely to succeed in politics um and uh, uh Beyond that he, he decided in his early twenties that he would dress uh, in a very uh, dandiacal fashion. He, was, he wore extravagant clothes, uh, curled his hair in ringlets, and was all lace and ruffles and bright colors when serious sober people going into politics dressed in black um, and uh, so again, he was a figure of uh, of uh, quite extraordinary uh, difference uh, from anything that the politicians had ever seen before, or for that matter, the general public and voters who were uh, going to be the people he was appealing to, uh, to get into the House of Commons.
0: He really comes across as a person who cuts a very dramatic figure, but it's not the sort of figure that was commonplace in politics he was more of a of a byron in terms of being very
1: showy. and that's very true he was very much taken with byron uh, his father had actually met byron at john murray the publisher's dinners and uh, disraeli uh was consciously imitating byron i have a chapter in my book called the byronic legacy mm-hmm. uh and he even went so far uh, uh to go on a extended tour of the mediterranean and eastern uh, middle eastern uh, countries uh, in which he followed byron's itinerary for much of the journey uh, and he he uh, he saw himself uh, caught up in the, the same psychology of byron that is um, you know claiming to be a person of principles but at the same time when challenged or defeated in, in any way, uh, developing a kind of scornful and cynical attitude towards the world. Uh, and uh, so it, w- it wasn't just uh, the sort of clothes and the striking postures he would adopt, but, but also the psychological uh, dimensions of his personality that were uh, clearly modeled and shaped on uh, Byron's reputation. And yet,
0: as you point out, that Byronic, well, for lack of a better word, pose, is one that's at odds with so much of his background and his appearance. You were talked about how the ideal at the time was tall, strong, fair-haired, and Disraeli, really, by contrast, is short and dark and, of course, coming from a Jewish heritage. So the pose seems much more of a pretense in some ways than it might have if he had been, say, you know, if he looked like William Gladstone.
1: Very true. Uh, It's important to realize when I talk about his Jewish heritage that that is a familial uh, thing, but um, there's one very sort of strange feature of Disraeli's youth, and that is that his father... uh, who was a member of the uh, Bivis Marks uh, Synagogue in London, um, had a quarrel with the elders of the synagogue and left the synagogue. And as a consequence of that quarrel, uh, Disraeli's father decided to have his children baptized in the Church of England. And this was a stroke of uh, incredible good fortune for Disraeli in one sense, because he was not eligible to be a member of the house of commons as a jew uh unless uh unless he had uh adopted uh, a christian uh, religion by choice and so um that that feature of disraeli's youth uh made him eligible uh for a political career that he would otherwise not have had because it would have by 1858 when the jews were finally liberated as it were from their um Uh, liabilities um, it would have been far too late to start now the other thing about well that that leads me to the core analysis of uh, his his character and personality all his life Disraeli was ambivalent about being both Jewish and a Christian Uh, and um, on the one hand he was very proud of the Jews and particularly historically, uh, and um, he was proud of uh, of his ancestry, um, although he fabricated various versions of that ancestry from time to time. But he was also very aware of what a terrible burden it was to be Jewish in, uh, uh, in the world of Victorian politics, uh, because, of course, uh, uh, there was such terrible prejudice against the Jews. Um, on the other hand that's one side of the ambivalence but the other side is that he was also also convinced he was different from other people and that difference wasn't just his his heritage he he felt he was different in ability uh in character in in the word he used actually was genius Mm -hmm. he he felt himself superior to most people if not all other people and um Uh, at least those he knew. And um, on the one hand, uh, uh, this led him to be extraordinarily ambitious with regard to uh, his uh, political life. Uh, And uh, so that that ambivalence is something that comes up all the time in the novels. In in virtually every novel, there is some form of this ambivalence. And... um, and uh it's there in the politics as well of course
0: mm-hmm. this one of the uh you we were talking about that sense of genius it also comes across in his early novels the sense of a person who stands out who shines and who ultimately is rewarded primarily for their genius rather than their coming from the right background or mm-hmm. having uh for example, the the proper education and so forth. Yes, I was wondering if we could maybe then go back a bit and start talking about how he got into novel writing and some of those early novels.
1: Sure. Well, the the one that is most intriguing is the very first one. Uh, Disraeli, as a young man, at, at the time he was beginning to speculate on the stock market and consequently to rack up very serious debts. He was a he was uh, a, a, an acquaintance more than an acquaintance, a friendly acquaintance of John Murray, the publisher who I already referred to as a friend of his father's and uh, Murray wanted to start a newspaper that would rival The Times and this newspaper, which was eventually called the representative, uh, was something that he uh, gave Disraeli a major role in in setting up uh, and um, even though Disraeli, as I say, was just a very young man of 20 years old old at the time. Um, so But the the venture with Murray and his newspaper didn't turn out well. Uh, There were a lot of difficulties in trying to establish a newspaper, but Disraeli managed to alienate some of the other important players in the project. Uh, And in the end, he left the project in a somewhat state of disgrace, I suppose, with, with them, um, and uh, it didn't turn out well at all, but certainly while he was working on that project of establishing the newspaper, he had very large ambitions about what what his role in life might turn out to be, uh, a man of great power and influence in shaping public opinion and uh, probably getting... Uh, to be uh, one of the leaders of uh, of political life outside of Parliament, but in any case, when he when when it all ended in failure and collapse for him, uh, he set out to write a novel called Vivian Grey, and uh, Vivian Grey is uh, uh, a disguised version of the events surrounding the representative newspaper, and uh, it's it's a different story, of course. But in in the uh, novel, uh, the hero Vivian uh, attempts to manipulate a powerful political figure, the Marquis of Carabas, uh, and uh, Vivian is portrayed in a satirical way as uh, a cynical opportunist in every way. Uh, and again, there's a lot of Byronic posturing in the uh, in the novel, um, and uh, but. It was a huge success of, of Scandal uh, because people could see right away uh, that uh, there were uh, similarities to some of the uh, characters, uh, fictional characters, and people actually surrounding Murray and his circle of friends. And uh, as a consequence, the publisher actually put out a key to Vivian Gray <laughs> trying to identify each of the characters. But uh, it was thought... It was published anonymously, so it took some time for uh, uh, the truth of who the author of this book was. But in the meantime, it was a very successful novel, uh, albeit in the judgment of s- sober critics, a trashy one. Um, but uh, it's, it, it established uh Disraeli uh, as somebody who had a certain amount of talent in the matter of writing fiction and uh uh although it, it turned out i think to be again a liability in his political career later on because people could go back and say see <laughs> this is what he is mm-hmm. he's a cynical opportunist he's he's got no sort of moral core he's he's got no uh uh gravitas And uh, so on. So that's how he got into politics. Uh, But at the same time that he was writing novels in the early years, he was doing so largely to try and raise some money to pay off uh, these uh, debts or to keep even with them at at any rate. So he wrote five or six more novels um, between uh, 1826 and uh, 1836-37. And uh, each time he was trying to write for money, uh, trying to create. But each of those romances, nonetheless, has a a fantasy structure, a pattern of characterization and development of plot that speaks to the ambivalences of Disraeli's own situation, of how he sees himself. Uh, And uh, so uh, that. That I think is uh, what I what I bring to the study of the early novels that others have missed.
0: One of the other novels of that early period that really stands out is uh, Contrini Fleming, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about where about the that novel in Disraeli's life and what he's trying to capture, what what he captures in that uh, of where he is at that point.
1: Yes, uh, it's another novel where the where the st- uh, the whole dynamic is ambivalence. Uh, in this case, uh, the hero, Contarini Fleming, and the very names themselves suggest a kind of ambivalence, uh, Contarini being Italian and Fleming being very much an English name. But in in, in this novel, uh, the hero feels he has a dichotomous heritage, that of his father and his father's world and that of his mother and his mother's world. And uh, in terms of their uh, and the father is a successful politician in a northern country. And his mother comes from Venice uh, and uh, has an Italian heritage. And uh, so Contarini uh, initially has a great deal of success operating in his father's world uh, and enters politics there, Uh, but he longs for a different kind of recognition, not the recognition of his genius, of his ability, but the recognition of a kind of maternal, uh, all-embracing love uh, that would... uh, uh, Be an acceptance of who he is without any demonstration of uh, uh, his uh, his organizational genius or oratorical genius, and so the world the the novel involves uh, uh, Contarini going to Italy uh, and there discovering his uh, cousin who seems to be um, uh, an exact uh, identical uh, replica of his mother who is deceased and uh, so you can see there again how the ambivalence plays out in the novel uh the the desire to succeed on the one hand through a demonstration of his superiority largely uh, in political terms and an oratorical superiority uh and on the other hand a desire for uh some kind of innate acceptance of his purity and his lovableness and uh without any without any uh, need to go beyond that um, and those two those two kinds of ambivalences in his uh, in his sense of himself uh, are very strong in Contarini Fleming
0: now at the time he writes these novels they're serving in another purpose as well, which is that they are established. They're helping him to continue to establish his position in British society. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about their reception, especially among people, the elite uh, and how that played into both uh, his affair with uh, Lady Henrietta Sykes and also his uh, friendship with Lord Lyndhurst and his eventual entry into parliament.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I, I think that the early novels, I think it's fair to say, did not do them much good in a political sense. Um, they, some of them were more popular than others, um, but um, I, I think people were quite uh, quick to uh, see them as, as uh, less than uh, impressive works of art. Uh, but of course that's judging by a different standard in a sense there, the the world the world of victorian uh fiction is populated by thousands and thousands of these uh romances as such and uh Disraeli seems to be uh, exploiting that genre when he when he gets later on and he writes uh, political novels they're they're much more tightly structured uh and they have a overt propagandistic theme and and so on but let's go back and look at him in the 1830s when he's still as it were trying to make some headway uh as a public figure of some notoriety uh fame perhaps if you call it that but more likely uh, seen mostly in a negative way by those who have any uh class status or power social power um and uh a uh, couple of the novels do relate directly to the kind of life he was leading as a young dandyish figure, uh, and the author of all these novels, he was uh, he was uh, invited places uh, because of his uh, extraordinary wit, his command of language, uh, and his ability to be satirical and sarcastic. Uh, to entertain people with his commentary on politics, uh, uh, and uh, one of the features of that was his hatred of the Whig Party, uh, and uh, so uh, he he was always uh, good value for your in- invitation when he came to dinner or to your evening soiree or whatever, uh, and he did uh, he did inhabit. Uh, that world around the fringes of the aristocracy, because of his notoriety, um, and because of his, uh, as they say, his his uh, capacity to entertain people with his wit, and that opened uh, up
0: possibilities for him,
1: contacts. It, it did, it did, and one of the people, as you say, he met through Lady Henrietta Sykes was Lord Lyndhurst, and Lord Lyndhurst is a former Chancellor of the uh, um, Lord Chancellor of uh Parliament uh in the House of Lords and uh uh Lyndhurst was a bit of a rakish figure himself, uh and uh he uh he saw possibilities in Disraeli's ability uh and uh took him on as a private secretary. But Lyndhurst was uh uh one of the so-called ultra Tories and uh he uh he he was interested in trying to resist the the move towards reform. Uh the reform bill of eighteen thirty two um had already happened by the time Disraeli met Lyndhurst, but uh Lyndhurst was uh leader as as they say of this group in the uh, of the Tory lords in the house uh in the House of Lords uh that uh was trying to resist uh any further encroachments on the status quo of the uh, landed uh aristocracy and uh, so at the time of the municipal corporations bill uh Disraeli was acting as Lyndhurst's private secretary, and he was also writing a lot of quite scurrilous journalism uh for newspapers and uh, and other, and pamphlets and things like that uh trying to support the ultra Tory position um now this is somewhat strange because disraeli had been uh victimized by his previous attempts to get into parliament he ran twice in 1832 again in 1833 or four and then again in 1835 uh each time failing to win a seat. Uh, and in doing so, he, he tried to run as a radical, then as a Tory, then as a radical Tory, and radical again, and so on. And um, people were quick to point out how inconsistent all this seemed. Uh, and uh, uh, in looking at that, I, I tried to see if there was any consistency at all in Disraeli's uh, Sort of identification of himself as a political candidate, and I think the the thing that is consistent is he's always again running against the Whigs, and he's taking whatever position uh ha- gives him the best chance of being elected uh in particular contexts uh, but uh as Lyndhurst's private secretary again he as I say he was quite um an active journalist as well. Um, and m- most of it was pretty fierce stuff, with a lot of name calling and uh, sarcasm and uh, satire of uh, Whig politicians. Um, so, uh, in a sense, that uh, is part of the historical background. Another thing is that the affair with Lady Henrietta Sykes led to when it when it finished. It, it lasted about three years, and then. It broke up, uh, and but Disraeli then wrote a novel called Henrietta Temple, which is a again a disguised version of the the kind of uh, uh, emotional life that uh, Disraeli was having with Henrietta, um, uh, and uh, again it's a question of how to how to find both love and success while uh, dealing with the. Uh, tensions and ambivalences about both of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so, but again, uh, a good example of how uh, the life leads into the fiction and the fiction uh, is related to the life.
0: He does get into parliament in 1838 and he is now a conservative or a Tory. And yet he's not really being rewarded at the level of, of, of his genius, if you will, or at least his self appreciated genius. He's sort of at the, at the bottom of a, of a very
1: large pile. Yeah. yeah. It was actually the general election of 1837. Um, uh, with the accession of queen Victoria to the throne, there was a new general election, um, as is the case, uh, when monarchs change. And, uh, by then, Disraeli had begun to serve the interests of the Tory party, which Lyndhurst had certainly uh, helped uh, create um, uh, as a role for him. Uh, but he had, he had fought a by-election down in Taunton um, in 1835. And then in 1837, uh, he ran as a candidate in Maidstone, uh, a, a constituency that sent two members of parliament, um, said two members to parliament and um, that election uh, uh, was interesting in terms of uh, his life too because he had previously met at a party given by bulwer linton a, a woman named mary mary ann wyndham lewis and she was the wife of a coal magnet from well uh, wales and, but who had gone into politics and was the other, was the other conservative member for Maidstone. And he was looking around for, uh, a, a new candidate who could run for the second seat, as it were, in that constituency. And Marianne, uh, Wyndham Lewis persuaded her husband to back Disraeli. He was a wealthy man and Disraeli didn't have the kind of money that a campaign would, uh, take in Maidstone. Which was quite a corrupt constituency, uh, and uh, but Wyndham Lewis backed him, and Israeli got elected, largely with uh, the enthusiastic help of Marianne, and uh, so he immediately got into Parliament, and he, he, of course, as you suggest, he he thought highly of his own abilities, uh, but Parliament has its own sort of forms and uh, and rules and regulations. Uh, some formal some informal uh, that make it difficult for brash outsiders to uh, just crash the party as it were and uh, so his first attempts uh, at what he called getting the ear of the house were not particularly successful in fact the maiden speech was something of a disaster he was hooted down by the irish radicals because he had unwisely decided to speak on the legitimacy or illegitimacy of some Irish elections um, but anyway uh, over time he did master the techniques of parliamentary debate and uh, and uh, by uh, 1841 when Sir Robert Peel was f- going to form a majority government having won the election of that year uh, Disraeli fully expected to be in the cabinet uh, or at least to be given a very significant role in the government uh, and he'd been encouraged in this no doubt by his friendship with Lyndhurst, Lord Lindhurst uh, but uh, Peel actually had very little discretion about who he might appoint to the cabinet because of course he had to deal with the people of real power and influence in the party and he, uh, he had a lot of aristocratic uh, people that uh, had previously served as cabinet ministers, and um, and uh, so I don't think he ever really seriously considered that Disraeli should get such a, a place. But Disraeli saw it differently, and uh, he was mortified, humiliated uh, by being left out of Peel's cabinet. Uh, and uh, that led to a very different sense of... Uh, of strategy, uh, he, he he began to uh, believe that uh, some other other way of getting into a, a leadership role in Parliament would have to be found, and strangely enough, it came along because in making a few speeches about uh, the things he believed in, uh, the importance of the landed aristocracy, the role of the church. Uh, in representing the people uh, and so on uh, he he drew the friendship of other young members of parliament um, who uh, had similar views and uh, so this became the embryo of what's called the Young England movement uh, and uh, the Young England movement was a sort of ginger group within the conservative party uh, It uh, took the license and freedom of criticizing their own party leaders um, and so over and over and over again disraeli and his friends uh, who were um, george smythe the son of viscount strangford uh, lord john manners the younger son of the duke of rutland and alexander bailey Cochrane, a cambridge friend of smythe and manners um, the, the the group of them formed uh, as i say this movement known as young england and um they had a dozen or so other supporters but they were the core of the group um and um, they they began to have an impact uh on uh on uh how uh, the conservative party was doing business by virtue of the critique they kept bringing to uh, various uh actions and uh policies of of uh, sir robert peel and his cabinet so there's no doubt that Disraeli Israeli was motivated in part by revenge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you've you neglected me. I'm a genius and you're going to pay for it. Uh, and so there's a, there's a kind of zest in the Young England movement. Uh, but it, it partly comes from a disillusionment with the state of England and the state of politics. Peel was a moderate uh, and... Uh, His moderate policies didn't impress Disraeli and his friends in the Young England Movement as equal to what they saw as the crisis that England was going through. Uh, By the 1840s, they were known as the hungry 40s because of the mass unemployment and uh, the collapse of business uh, uh, ventures and uh, so on, and the poverty was extensive among the working classes. And um, so... Uh, There was a sense of crisis in the 40s and uh, manifested elsewhere by uh, the development of chartism, the working class radical movement or uh, uh, the kinds of literature that Carlyle was writing about, Thomas Carlyle, um, uh, urging a sense that somehow or other England had lost its way uh, and some form of uh, very different uh, uh, policy and approach was necessary. Now you mentioned it, how
0: Carlyle's writing and Disraeli's writing that Disraeli was not informed by Carlyle. We can't find any evidence of it, but the fact that they both seem to echo a lot of the same concerns reflects that common atmosphere of the nineteen of the eighteen forties.
1: Yes, I think that's right. Uh, there's no evidence that Disraeli had read Carlyle um, before writing his own uh, works. Um, in the eighteen forties, but certainly uh certainly uh they had similar world views, although Carlyle expressed his differently. Uh but there was a similarity and people did speculate on how closely uh the, the two authors uh uh were in uh in uh, reading each other's works.
0: You mentioned uh, oh sorry, go ahead.
1: Go ahead. No go ahead. I was
0: to say that In addition to developing this Young England movement and it serving as a platform from which to criticize Peel's government, it also served as a source of material for the first of these three political novels he writes during this period. I was wondering if you could speak to those.
1: Yes, that's very true. Um, The Young England, well, let me explain that uh, the first of the political novels is Coningsby and it's subtitled "Or the New Generation." And uh, essentially, uh, Disraeli takes uh, some of the ideas from the Young England Movement uh, and uh, uh, puts them into the, the structure of an, a narrative in this novel, Coningsby. Um, but the whole, the whole idea of Coningsby is that, it's, that there needs to be a kind of heroic individualism in the leadership of politics, um, and uh, so Coningsby is the grandson of a powerful lord, uh, uh, a, a marquis uh, in uh, in uh, the Conservative Party, uh, and uh, his grandfather thinks he should go into Parliament and just carry on as it were, holding up the family tradition. But Coningsby has all these ideas about something new, something different uh and uh and he rejects the old style Tory politics and he wants to see a national party created where that represents all of the people, not just the wealthy and uh the powerful. And so that, that's uh how Coningsby gets started. And uh, it's full of satire. Uh it's a very witty novel and if people want to read a Disraeli novel, that's the one they should start with. Well, unless you like Vivian Gray, but, uh, <laughs> but again, it's the same wit, it's the same satire, the same sarcasm coming through over and over and over again uh, as he skewers one person after another in the, in the novel, these fictional characters who are actually, again, based on observation of real people within the Conservative Party. And uh, so Coningsby uh, has this kind of uh, interesting... Uh, nature it's it's great it's really entertaining at the same time that it's seriously propagandistic Uh, he's arguing for a particular approach a particular view of politics uh, that will reform things uh, not in terms of reform bills but in terms of this kind of aristocratic leadership uh, that uh, a new generation of uh, young men could uh, bring to the party now he got this idea of a renewed aristocracy uh, from the works of viscount bolingbroke who was a political figure and a philosopher in the early 18th century and bolingbroke had um, written a number of works in one called the patriot king and uh, and another on on uh, on patriotism, and uh, he urged a young aristocrat, Lord Lord Cornbury, uh, to develop precisely the kind of leadership that Disraeli, really a hundred years later, one hundred and twenty years later, is advocating uh, in Coningsby. So there is a historical uh, link there, and it's interesting that uh, Bolingbroke was very much the same sort of uh, figure uh, that israeli was turning out to be uh morally uh suspect um and uh but but again witty and uh and uh, ambitious and uh, so on so uh but coningsby as a novel has another feature it 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 has the the, the fictional plot of the hero coningsby and his circle of friends but it also has Interspersed among the uh, the the plot of the fiction, uh, a series of chapters that are like little political essays, and uh, and these are the way in which uh, Disraeli is able to uh, make uh, the uh, the novel succeed as as propaganda, uh, because people are given a a kind of historical perspective on uh, on what he's trying to develop in, in the fiction as a romance uh, of self-fulfillment. And Coningsby
0: is very different, though, from the other two novels that he will write during this period as well. That was one of the things that you talk about, which is that in some ways he's developing almost three different aspects of his character during this period.
1: Well, uh, before I address that, let me just say that most historians and most literary critics, uh, before uh, I came along, uh, saw the political trilogy as very different in nature from the earlier novels. But I've been able to show that, in fact, the uh, political trilogy contained elements of the same fantasy structure that, that shaped the early novels. Uh, in all of them, too, uh so that there is a continuity in the romance portions of these novels uh that again has to do um, with uh um, Disraeli's own developing identity now, with regard to uh the differences among the the propagandistic uh trilogy uh the, the first novel, Coningsby was deliberately designed to talk about the nature of political parties and the need for heroic individual leadership. Uh, I think he intended to go on into a subject about uh, one of his other favorite topics, which is the importance of the church as representing those people who do not have any connection to actual politics, the poor uh, and the working class who don't have the vote, who don't follow politics in the usual sense uh, but who nonetheless whose welfare ought to be every politician's concern and Disraeli really believed that the church had a role to play in ameliorating the lives of the poor but in representing them too in the world of power politics and he I think he intended to do more with that uh, but he simply ran out of time in Coningsby. By the time he'd got his novel written about the political parties, it was 400 and some pages long. Uh, <laughs> he had to put so, a stop to it at some point. Yeah. So uh, he then uh, w- had in mind a second novel where he would talk about the church, and I'll come to that in just a moment. But after, when Coningsby was published, it was a huge, huge success. it it took the political world and the social world by storm and Disraeli became suddenly what he'd always wanted to be, a significant person uh, within the realm of political discourse. Uh, And uh, so um, uh, that led to a very interesting moment when uh, there was a working men's uh, uh, institution in Manchester called the Manchester Athenaeum. And they were so impressed with Coningsby and with Disraeli's uh, uh, novel that they invited Disraeli and his Young England friends to come up to Manchester and be the featured speakers at their annual soiree. And this turned out to be, again, an absolutely marvelous success because there were something like 3,200 people in the audience. It was a, a um a lecture and a dance following and Disraeli was the featured speaker but uh smythe George Smythe and Lord John manners also spoke uh, uh, uh that evening uh but again it was all reported in the press and again he seemed to be building not only a a a, a, a fame or a uh, uh significance within the politi- the narrow political world, but in the wider public world because this got this was reaching out to uh people who don't really have much in the way of direct uh involvement in politics but uh, although the map the athenaeum was clearly in part a way of helping working class people educate gain an education uh educate themselves so uh again that evening at manchester after coningsby had been published in, uh that fall uh he he uh disraeli acquired a, a a whole other level of fame uh and uh success uh so by the time he comes to write his second novel sybil um uh he it's it's subtitled uh or the two nations uh, the rich and the poor. Um, by the time he comes to write that novel, uh, he's, he's got a kind of status, uh, both as a, an author and as a politician. Uh, and, uh, so he takes on the subject, uh, in that novel, he takes on the subject of religion, uh, and in particular the role of the church. This is the Church of England we're talking about, a Protestant church. Uh, and uh uh Sybil is really in my view a religious allegory uh which uh in which d'israeli tries to show uh the kind of leadership that's needed uh for the working classes through the uh character of his hero an aristocrat charles Egremont, who's the younger son of a lord uh and um well actually he's the brother uh, by the time the novel gets going he's the brother of an aristocrat uh, and uh um that that novel too uh is full of wonderful dramatic scenes working scenes of working class poverty scenes of working class uh violence scenes of uh of uh, uh political rebellion uh, Rick Birding in the ag- agriculture uh, sec- uh, sector, when uh, when uh, people were being driven uh, to desperation by the uh, collapse of the agricultural economy, um, and so uh, once again, the Israeli finds that he's written a novel. That everybody's talking about. Everybody wants to read. Everybody. I mean, I was writing a, a, a paper on an entirely different subject recently about Robert and Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett uh, and their courtship romance, and in their letters to each other, they're talking about Israeli. <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth Barrett says, "Don't stay up late reading Sybil." <laughs> so, in a sense, he, he's 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 expanding his world uh in these in these political novels uh and finding an audience that's both educated and uneducated uh people of wealth and people of poverty uh people of uh of uh, differing political views but everybody's reading disraeli it was a bit uh almost like the success that dickens had when he started Uh, You know, everybody wanted to read the latest novel uh, by Dickens, but it turned out in the 1840s, they wanted to read the latest novel by Disraeli. Uh, And uh, so uh, once again, uh, uh, a very uh, interesting novel uh, full of, uh, as I say, striking scenes, uh, interesting characterizations, real tension in the plot um, and uh, and yet conveying a message as they say, about uh, the importance of the church as an institution um, in the lives of people who don't really have any access to political activity as such.
0: And yet the novels by themselves aren't going to bring him to power. And and that's one of the things that I find fascinating about this period of Israeli's life is as he's writing these novels, which articulate a political vision, he also is in the midst of all this political change with Robert Peel embracing the repeal of the corn laws and the uh, schism that takes place within the conservative party, which paves the way for, his assumption of leadership in the House of Commons and eventually his ascent to the premiership in the
1: 1860s. Very true. Um, uh, If we're going to talk about uh, the Corn Law debate in 1846, it's important to realize that Sir Robert Peel, when he had been elected with a majority in 1841, had run on a protectionist platform. That is, he had He had run defending the corn laws. The agricultural distress uh, was so bad by the mid-40s and uh, the consequences in terms of the poverty of uh, agricultural workers, uh, farmers, landowners uh, was so great. Uh, The the consequences were so great that Peel began to think uh, that he should change his mind. There had been something called the Anti-Corn Law League uh, based on a bunch of economics advocates who were arguing for free trade. And that's essentially what the debate is about. Are you going to have duties on the importation of corn, which is really wheat? It's the English word for wheat in the 19th century. Are you going to have duties on the importation of wheat? Or are you going to allow the market uh, to take its own way uh, and allow England to import very significant quantities, which would have the effect of undermining—excuse <coughs> me—the price uh, of wheat that uh, that local uh, landowners could uh, get for their crops. But in any case, Peel became convinced eventually that the Corn Laws couldn't be uh maintained and so uh he decided that he would have to bring in uh a bill to repeal them and uh this had always been a policy that the whigs were prepared to undertake uh but the tories as a party had never seen that as their uh, uh goal and indeed when peel decided to repeal the corn laws it was widely thought that he had simply betrayed his own party, and disraeli the ultra Tories and the, the the Tory land large Tory landowners um, all um, uh, were hostile to peel 's measure and Disraeli uh, deci- had decided by this time that there would never be a place for him in a cabinet of a government run by Sir Robert Peel. It was quite clear that uh, for all his fame and success as a novelist and for his success in speaking in Parliament, there wasn't going to be any lessening of the prejudice against him. Uh, And uh, so I think he came to the conclusion that the only way he was ever going to get into a position of authority and power in the Conservative Party would be to destroy Peel's ministry. And he sets out to do that. And he launches a series of attacks, vitriolic attacks, really, really bitter attacks, uh, although often witty, uh, on Peel uh, throughout uh, the Corn Law debate. Uh, and he galvanizes the opposition to Peel's re- measure of repeal uh, amongst the Tory squires and the Tory lords. Uh, and... Uh, Other members of the party. And basically, two thirds or three quarters of the Tory party did not support Peel's idea of repealing the laws. But the Whigs, of course, did. So you had a crazy situation where the opposition would carry a bill for a Tory prime minister, uh, even though his own party was, the majority of his own party was against it. Um, And, uh, but Disraeli knew that this, that this opposition uh, that he'd been able to, as they say, organize and galvanize would, would mean the end of Peel's career, uh, as a prime minister, at least for the moment. And, uh, sure enough, after the repeal was carried, uh, the next, the very next bill was a, a bill on Irish, uh, security, security in Ireland. And there the Whigs were in opposition as well, and the Tory party voted against Peel, and he was forced to resign. And out of that came, as you say, the split in the Conservative Party that would really never be healed uh, because Peel and his supporters, among whom had been Gladstone, William Gladstone, all took a different route. They all became what were known as the Peelites, uh, and gradually over the next decade, they came closer and closer and closer to the Whigs until they actually merged and formed the Liberal Party. Meanwhile, the ultra-conservative side of uh, the Tory party uh, went its own way and spent basically two decades in the wilderness of politics in opposition. Uh, they they had uh, three very uh, short uh, minority governments in that period, but they never won a majority election. Uh, and Disraeli had to find his way in that conservative party, which had in a sense uh found itself outside the the realm of probable government uh because of the split in the party so yes, and
0: Disraeli's rise to power uh comes about as a result of this. But, of course, with this, you have the decline of his literary output. He does three more novels over the course of his career.
1: Yes, uh, well, politics becomes all engrossing if you're gonna uh, what happened was that when the party split, there was a struggle for leadership uh, of the party. It was pretty much agreed that Lord darby uh, would lead the party, but he was in the House of Lords. Uh, so he needed uh, a leader of the party in the House of Commons. And there was a, a real struggle for that. Uh, and many members of the party, although they had voted with Disraeli against Peel's Corn Law, had no intention of having Disraeli take over the uh, uh, leadership of the party in the House of Commons. And indeed, it's at this point that the anti-Semitism that he faces becomes really nasty uh and you get the most egregious examples of people commenting on disraeli's character now you must admit he gave them lots of ammunition in his early years right Mm -hmm. the debts, the uh affair with henrietta sykes the uh inconsistent uh jumping around from party to party uh and then plus all the uh all the uh, barbs in his uh, his critique of Peel's uh, government in the 1842 to 44 period uh, and uh, the critique implicit in Coningsby, all of that weighed against Israeli in the minds of these uh, ultra-Tory uh, conservatives. And uh, so it wasn't an easy struggle. The one thing he had, though, was the ability to speak the ability to make speeches and to carve out arguments uh, that were very persuasive. And in the end, there was nobody else in the party uh, who was capable of leading the party in the House of Commons, because all of the good speakers had gone with Peel. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All of the cabinet ministers and things like that had gone with Peel uh, and were as you know drawing ever closer to the Whigs uh in their in their uh, sort of ideology and so gladstone went that way and would eventually become the leader of the liberal party once the Whigs and the peelites had coalesced uh, meanwhile disraeli as i say was the only the only officer still standing on the battlefield <laughs> uh, as it were, after the split in the Conservative Party, uh, and uh, so it, the the fight for the leadership was prolonged and difficult. But he eventually uh, was given that leadership, uh, although there had been talk of of combinations uh, uh, as as the process went along. But in the end, nobody else was even remotely as talented as Disraeli, as capable. In debate as he was, uh, and so he ended up as the leader in the uh, House of Commons under the general leadership of Lord Derby in the House of Lords. Uh, but as I say, it was it was a party in opposition most of the next two decades, uh, and it wasn't until the 1860s uh, that the Israeli's leadership uh, of the House of Commons. Was so impressive and so uh, obviously deserving that uh, he took over as prime minister when Lord Derby, who was temporarily uh, prime minister again with a minority, um, uh, when when he had to retire for reasons of health, Disraeli was finally able to become prime minister. But in those years of opposition he had three times served as chancellor of the exchequer in these minority conservative governments led by lord derby uh and so he had in a sense had some real influence in shaping uh the policy of the government uh, and uh, and uh, he was uh, uh a very prominent figure by the time the mid 1860s came along but the last three novels he writes
0: have to come at points where he has the luxury of time away from politics. Tancred comes out in the immediate aftermath of the Corn Law crisis. And then he writes both there. And, uh, I believe it's pronounced, how do you pronounce it? Edeman and Dimion and, Dimien,
1: uh, and Dim- are both
0: written between his periods as prime minister.
1: That's right. And, uh, that That's because the demands of leadership uh, become all engrossing uh, and there isn't time to take any time off. But every time there's a, a kind of lull in the demand for political action, uh, he turns back to fiction um, to comment on or develop uh, uh, some kind of, of uh, understanding of what the politics has been about or will be about.
0: And as you point out in the final chapters, there, a lot <clears throat> of the same themes from his earlier
1: works continue forward. Oh, yes, yes. One of, one of the features of Disraeli's uh, Israeli's political life is that he was always prone to conspiracy theories. And uh, he was always ambivalent about Catholicism. This goes back into the very early novels and the years of the early political struggles in the 1830s. Uh, He was often sympathetic to individual Catholics and even to Catholicism as a religion, but he hated um, Catholic politics and he hated the papacy. Uh, And so he was always prone to um, developing a conspiracy theory about Catholic politics and Papal influence. Uh, and that shows up uh, certainly in Lothair, which is written after he was first prime minister in 1868. That was a minority government, uh, and he was on the defensive from the very beginning because uh, Gladstone had introduced resolutions calling for the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland. And so Disraeli knew he was only going to be prime minister until the next general election. It would have to be on. The, the new franchise after the reform bill of 1867 and, uh, which Disraeli had engineered, uh, so magnificently. But, uh, in a sense, when he, when he's driven out of office by that election in 1868, he has time on his hands and he reflects back on what he saw as a betrayal of his Irish policy, uh, his attempt at an Irish policy, um, in 1868. Uh, and he had fought the election uh, on what he called the great Protestant struggle. That is the the need to defend the Church of Ireland, uh, because that was the thin edge of a wedge against the Church of England. And so you, you see you see some of the early themes and early ambivalences coming forward again in the later novels. That's just one example, but there are others.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Sure. Uh, can I just add one thing first, though? Sure. Uh, I think one of the things that I talk about in the book at the end is Disraeli's really remarkable relationship with Queen Victoria. She uh, she had not been impressed with Disraeli as a, as a politician in the first instance, but she was persuaded that Disraeli was actually somebody who was good for the monarchy and defended the rights of the monarchy uh by her husband uh, prince albert and then after prince albert died disraeli was very close to the queen in terms of his sympathies about her loss and about the burdens of carrying on without his without prince albert's help uh and so gradually over time he became her favorite prime minister uh, so that when he had a second ministry in 1874 to 1880 and uh and uh, was so involved in foreign affairs, about which the queen knew quite a bit. Um, uh, he, that relationship blossomed uh, into almost a kind of reciprocal, uh, best friends forever kind of uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, relationship. Uh, and uh, uh, that's a significant feature of his success in foreign policy at the time. Now, with regard to what i'm working on now uh, i uh, having finished the Disraeli Project, I got interested in the larger question of political rhetoric in the nineteenth century, and that's what i'm working on i I'm, I'm trying to do a study that compares the language of parliament of politics in Parliament with the language of politics as it's used in newspapers and compare again both of those to the language uh, used in novels and fiction when they are discussing politics and uh, i've got a, a central thesis which is that legislation lags public opinion and public opinion is shaped by rhetoric uh, and by the command of rhetoric and so i'm not just looking at israeli anymore i'm looking at all the different political parties and the major political figures so i've got a huge project that'll keep me busy for some time to come
0: it sounds like a quite a project well uh professor O'Kell, thank you very much for taking time to be on the show today i look forward to reading your project when it comes out i hope you have a wonderful day
1: okay thank you very much